Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 48 for August 31, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. In early August, the Trump administration issued sanctions against Turkey for its continued detention of American pastor Andrew Brunson. Ties between the two governments have been under strain for years, but this latest incident has seemingly touched off the most severe crisis in recent memory, including a plunge in Turkish economic indicators. That glue that held Turkey and the United States together over the Cold War no longer exists. The Cold War, I want to remind people, ended almost 30 years ago. It cannot be 1985 forever in this relationship. That was Stephen A. Cook, a Council on Foreign Relations senior fellow who spoke alongside Brookings Institution's senior fellow Amanda Sloat and Center for American Progress scholar Max Hoffman at an August 16 policy forum at the Washington Institute in Washington, D.C. As the historic dispute unfolds, what are the future prospects and pitfalls for the U.S.-Turkish relationship? We'll listen in on these three experts' analysis after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. First to speak was Amanda Sloat, a Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution Center on the United States and Europe. What I thought would be helpful is to provide a little bit of historical context to this, because I think the current dispute over the imprisonment of Andrew Brunson is really the immediate flashpoint, but it comes at the end of a, a period of growing tensions between the, the two countries. Uh, and certainly we've seen over the last couple of years, including during the time when I was in government, that both countries have developed lists of grievances against one another. From the Turkish perspective, there's been a sense that the U.S. has not taken seriously their security concerns, and they would point to two things. One is American cooperation with the YPG in Syria, given its links to the PKK, and the second is uh, the U.S. refusal to extradite Fethullah Gulen, who they, of course, blame as being responsible for the July 2016 coup attempt. On the U.S. side, there's been increasing questions about whether or not Turkey is a reliable ally. And again, this has two components. The first relates to Turkey's plans to buy the S-400 missile defense system from Russia, which would not be compatible with NATO systems. Uh, and also is seen as as being threatening to the security of the F-35 stealth fighter jets that the U.S. plans to sell to Turkey as part of a broader European consortium. And the second is the decline in rule of law, uh, particularly in the wake of the coup attempt, including what has been Erdogan's recent practice of engaging in hostage diplomacy with the imprisonment of several Americans, including some dual nationals, as well as three Turkish employees of U.S. consulates. The administration really, I think, made concerted efforts over the last year to try and find diplomatic ways of resolving these conflicts. It was quite striking if you look at one week in February 2018, where you had engagement by the American Defense Secretary, Secretary of State, and National Security Advisor with their Turkish counterparts all at the same time. Coming out of uh, then-Secretary of State Tillerson's visit to Turkey was the creation of several working groups, which were meant to be a way of resolving a lot of these issues. And I think from the American perspective, they went a long way to try and address some of these Turkish irritants. On the Syria side, there was the development of this Mambich roadmap, which was an effort to try and remove some of the YPG forces from Mambich, as had been promised to the Turks in the previous administration. Uh, charges were dropped against 11 of the 17 bodyguards of Erdogan who were involved 
involved in the Sheridan Circle incident during Erdogan's May uh, visit here last year. Uh, and Chavasholu also announced in, in uh, June following his meeting with Secretary Pompeo that Pompeo had told him that the FBI was opening investigations into Gulenist organizations in the U.S. So I think there was a, a feeling on the U.S. side that they had done quite a bit to try and address Turkish concerns. During the same period, you had growing frustration within Congress about a lot of these same issues with Turkey, and there really was a strong desire on the Hill to start imposing punitive measures on Turkey, and various legislative measures had been introduced. Some of these were held back because the administration had been saying to the Hill that they had these new diplomatic channels and they wanted to find a way to resolve these conflicts through those efforts. You also had in July Senators Shaheen and Graham going to Turkey and engaging with Erdogan personally to try and resolve some of these, these disputes. So what has been striking certainly two weeks ago is that you actually had a moving together of the positions of both the executive and legislative branches in terms of frustration with Turkey, a feeling that diplomatic efforts were not working, and a willingness for the first time to use economic measures against Turkey as a way of achieving some of these policy objectives. I think what we've seen in the last week or two has been a new phase of this, which is uh, the White House actually going out and taking a much harder line than what Congress had even been anticipating and perhaps what others within the administration were were looking to do. Uh, the question is whether or not this, this very strong approach by the White House, uh, particularly using the global Magnitsky sanctions, which initially had been developed to deal with Russian human rights abuses, and even in the Russia case were used on lower-level officials, starting with using those against uh, senior cabinet members of, of Erdogan's government, and then the steel and aluminum tariffs, which has been a tool that Erdogan has been using against European and, and Canadian allies is actually going to be a way to, to achieve the results that, that we're wanting to see or whether they end up backing Erdogan into such a corner that it becomes a little bit more difficult to try and find a diplomatic off-ramp. One thing that I think has become very clear in the last week or two is that this issue is now extremely personal for Trump. And I think it's quite clear that Trump is prepared to impose additional economic measures until he achieves his policy goal, which is seeing Andrew Brunson back on U.S. soil. So then the question becomes how much economic pain Erdogan is prepared to withstand while the U.S. continues to apply economic pressure to, to achieve these, these measures. Uh, even if the Brunson issue is solved, we still have this outstanding question of Russia uh, with the NDAA having passed in Congress, which puts limits on the potential transfer of the F-35s if the Russian sale goes ahead. And there is also pending legislation in the Senate, which would ask the United States to restrict loans from international financial institutions from being provided to, to Turkey. Uh, so there's certainly plenty of additional levers that can be used by the administration uh, in furtherance of, of this policy objective. Separate even from those, I think there's a couple of additional flashpoints that will be worth watching for. Uh, one is certainly in Syria. Uh, we have the potential for military operations in Idlib, which have the potential of increasing large numbers of refugees coming into Turkey, uh, and also, interestingly, will end up really pitting uh, Turkey and Russia on, on either side of the Syrian conflict. And on the Iran issue more broadly, it's very clear that the uh, Erdogan administration is interested in the handling of the Hulk Bank case, as well as potential conflict if the Trump administration continues to impose its zero imports policy with the snapback of those sanctions in November, which is going to be practically difficult for Turkey given its lack of, of viable alternatives. Last thing I'll say is, is Erdogan has certainly been speaking a lot publicly about his ability to have uh, friends and allies in other places. 
It was a very clear theme of his New York Times op-ed last week. Uh, I remain a little bit skeptical about how strong and enduring some of those alternative relations have the potential for, for being. Uh, certainly, we saw the $15 billion loan from Qatar yesterday, uh, which seems to have helped stabilize the Turkish economy to a certain extent. Uh, the other biggest opportunity for him in, in Russia, I think, is going to be complicated. Uh, Erdogan spoke to, to Putin last week. Foreign Minister Lavrov was in Turkey this week, uh, but it's worth remembering it was less than three years ago that we saw a serious crisis in Turkish-Russian relations following Turkey's shootdown of the Russian jet that had violated its airspace, leading to uh, sanctions being imposed by Russia on Turkey, as well as the eventual apology by, by Erdogan. Uh, the thing that's been the, the most striking is what seems to be Erdogan's charm offensive and diplomatic outreach to Europe to at least try and salvage some of his relationships with Western partners in the face of these deteriorating relations with the U.S. Uh, it was a welcome development to see the release of the two Greek soldiers earlier this week, as well as Tanner Kilic, the head of Amnesty International in Turkey, uh, as well as a renewal of diplomatic ties with the Netherlands and, and certainly continued outreach to improve relations with Germany. That was Amanda Sloat. Next to speak was Max Hoffman, Associate Director of National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. I think what we've seen over the last two weeks in Turkey is the sort of culmination of a, of a long-running crisis of authoritarianism. If you think about the long-term and short-term trends that are you know, devastating the Turkish economy and are applying such tremendous pressure on U.S.-Turkish relations, they all track back to this, this crisis of authoritarianism. You know, the central bank has no independence to raise interest rates, which would, of course, alleviate the immediate pressure on the Turkish lira and on the Turkish economy. It would not address the, you know, more deep-rooted problems in, in the Turkish economy, which have to do with the need for fundamental reform um, and the need to sort of invest in high, uh, higher technology, higher value-added exports uh, that the AKP government has sort of allowed to fall by the wayside over the last five, six, seven years. Um, but, you know, raising interest rates could buy them time. They, they can't do that, and that's because Erdogan has consolidated total control in his own hands. And he, he knows that raising interest rates would uh, fatally undermine the AKP's credit-fueled um, sort of growth agenda, uh, although growth should be in air quotes because it's, it's undermined entirely by high inflation. Um, and, you know, the, the AKP's domestic legitimacy is built in large part on this this credit-fueled, construction-fueled um, growth that we've seen for, for a decade, but which is now uh, running dry. You know, politically, it's crucial to Erdogan. Also, beyond the sort of general political legitimacy, this popularity he derives from this economic growth in a more fundamental way, which is that the AKP has built an extensive patronage system based, uh, you know, dating back to the 90s, in fact, when Erdogan was the mayor of Istanbul, uh, based on the awarding of construction permits, uh, as millions of Turks moved to the cities, you know, these high-rises sprung up. These permits were, were handed out by Erdogan and his cronies. They were used to accumulate political power. Um, they were used to, you know, siphon off huge amounts of money, as, as we've seen over the last five years emerge uh, in increasingly stark terms. And they built, they built a huge patronage system that, that really allows them to wield tremendous power and motivate voters, deliver services to their neighborhoods, while neglecting other neighborhoods. And, you know, Erdogan knows that, that these debts are starting to come due, that the end of this road is in sight, um, but he has completely consolidated power and, and will do his utmost to, to uh, you know, to defend this new elite that, that he's helped build. 
Um, of course, more broadly, what foreign investor would want to invest in Turkey these days when there's no rule of law? You can have um, no hope that you'd compete fairly for state contracts. You can have little hope that you'll get fair legal redress through the judicial system because the judicial system is entirely politicized. Uh, Erdogan, of course, has formally um, taken control of, of huge numbers of judicial appointments, but informally even before the constitutional referendum and, of course, the recent presidential and parliamentary elections, he wielded you know, almost total control over judicial appointments. And then this formal shift to the new system means that the old, uh, the old institutions that used to moderate the actions of Erdogan and previous Turkish leaders are, are completely neutered. You think particularly in, in terms of foreign relations of the military and the foreign ministry. Um, but domestically, the, the same rule holds. Uh, Erdogan is now untethered. He's, you know, all power is in his personal hands. The bureaucracy is completely sidelined. So there's nothing to prevent him from acting on, on his personal views. And some of those views are, are you know, quite bizarre, uh, particularly on the economic front. Um, his, his theory, of course, that low interest rates will uh, lead to low inflation and vice versa, you know, flies in the face of all accepted economic theory. Um, you know, on a more personal level, when you think of, well, well, surely he's still ex receiving expert advice. He, he must still know that he has to raise interest rates, that the Turkish economy um, is, is very vulnerable. Well, it's, it's very unclear because if you think about the, the mechanisms by which he would receive that sort of advice, that sort of input, uh, they really aren't working. I mean, he's been known to, to lash out, even hit aides who bring him bad news. Uh, the you know, bureaucracy, of course, has seen the well-publicized purges of hundreds of thousands of officials and bureaucrats who, you know, supporting a family through a, a state job in Turkey, uh, who, who would want to put all of that at risk by sort of raising their head above the parapet and delivering bad news to the president? So I think that there are very few mechanisms through which the, the sort of system can correct itself, and that's, and that's hugely worrying. So I think that's, that's a, you know, pretty dire analytical uh, look at, at what's happening on the Turkish side in terms of high-level decision-making. On the U.S. side, of course, we have our own set of problems. What we've seen emerge, um, not just on Turkey, but, but clearly exhibited on the Turkish front, is basically a bipolar U.S. foreign policy, whereby the you know, official interagency presents um, a certain policy, uh, you know, state and DOD. Usually it's more restrained. It's pretty level-headed. Uh, it would favor a gradual ramping up of pressure on Turkey. It would probably be primarily concerned, as Amanda alluded to, to with, with deterring Turkey from buying the Russian S-400 system, which to most U.S. policymakers is the more important strategic issue, even if Brunson and the other Americans detained pull at the, the heartstrings and, you know, are, of course, crucial issues in their own right. Um, but then we've seen the president and the White House emerge as this, you know, sort of almost separate uh, center of U.S. government policymaking. Um, there's a, there's a lot of evidence of that on a, on a number of fronts. I'd say on the Turkish front, you know, first, the fact that it was tweeted out, um, that that was how the decision on the initial sanctions, the Magnitsky sanctions, were announced. Second, the follow-up being steel and aluminum tariffs, which is, you know, a Trump classic, a Trump special, I think demonstrates that this is driven by him. Um, recently, Ambassador Kilic, the Turkish ambassador, going straight to to Bolton and sort of sidelining the State Department process that had begun uh, is, is further evidence. And then Chavusola, the Turkish foreign minister's comments about, you know, quote, confusion in the U.S. administration. Um, I think he's probably, uh, you know, that, that's part public messaging, but it's also part him responding to this, these two streams of information that, that the Turks are receiving. So that's, that's a problem. One of, you know, 
Trump is primarily, I wouldn't say primarily, Trump is clearly concerned about the domestic side of the Brunson issue, which is deeply troubling, at least to me. Um, that's visible in the way he talks about the issue and the way Vice President Pence talks about the issue. They constantly refer to Brunson's faith, the fact that he's a pastor, a Christian, a godly man, um, whereas I think most of us would agree that, that that's all fine, but that the U.S. government should be concerned with his well-being because he's a U.S. citizen, but they don't, they don't highlight that. Um, that's a, that's a concern. The other thing is that, uh, Trump's actions, for example, tweeting the second, you know, the aluminum and steel tariffs during, uh, Turkish finance minister Albayrak's press conference, they seem vindictive. It seems, as Amanda said, to be deeply, deeply personal at this point. Um, and that's a problem because it, it plays on the worst instincts of both presidents, frankly. This, you know, these big egos, um, they're fundamentally bullies, both of them, and they, uh, you know, they're now dug in and they see real political costs to backing down. But just because Trump is, seems so concerned with thumping his chest on this issue um, and has sort of backed Erdogan into a corner doesn't mean that, that a harder, you know, a stronger approach towards Turkey is necessarily wrong. I think that, you know, as Amanda alluded to, this is the culmination of a long-term drift, and we shouldn't neglect Turkey's agency in this rupture. You know, in many, time and again, Turkey has, has chosen to opt for confrontation with the United States and with the West more broadly rather than conciliation. Even the fact that we reached this point on the Brunson issue is down to, to Erdogan's desire to negotiate on other fronts, particularly regarding the Halk Bank sanctions, but, but other fronts, uh, to use Brunson as leverage. And American officials warned the Turks clearly before Brunson's most recent hearings that, uh, that there would be consequences if he wasn't released. They could have quietly released him and said the judicial process has run its course. They didn't do so. And um, they ignored, by doing that, they ignored the U.S.'s clear ability to turn the, the sort of negotiated leverage entirely on the Turks. Um, so two final points, and then I'll stop. Um, yes, certainly Erdogan's backed in a corner. Certainly he will now blame the Turkish economic crisis on the United States. The thing there is that he was going to blame the United States for the economic crisis anyway. In fact, he had been blaming the United States and the international community for years leading up to this point and probably preparing the ground for exactly this time. And the second point is that he can still back down. Erdogan completely controls the Turkish media. He's just been reelected. Even in the local elections in Turkey next year, he can use this as a rallying cry and probably gain votes. He has every ability to back down. Um, so it's really down to the, the sort of personal egos of, of these two presidents. That was Max Hoffman. Last to speak was Stephen A. Cook, the Eni Enrico Matai Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. My role here and, and what I'd like to do is to be purposely provocative. I agree with many of the things that, that Max and Amanda said, but I'd like to start with the bottom line of the U.S.-Turkey relationship. There are twin crises that are enveloping Turkey right now, the Lira crisis and the crisis in U.S.-Turkey relations. They are largely of Turkey's own making, and there's actually very little that the United States can do about it. The Turks, especially on the economy, have to be able to and willing to help themselves uh, on the economy. President Trump's change in policy, which includes a, a dramatic increase in public pressure, is actually a welcome change in policy. I agree with Amanda and Max that the tweet of last Friday announcing aluminum and steel tariffs was perhaps gratuitous. Uh, of course, it was entirely in keeping with uh, the president's uh, view of the world 
and uh, his background as a negotiator in the rough and tumble world of, of New York real estate. And while I recognize that it, in fact, has given Erdogan even more material with which to blame the United States for Turkey's economic troubles, this is something, as Max just pointed out, Erdogan was doing already, that he has been doing at least since 2013 in the time of the uh, Gezi Park protest, where he began railing about the interest rate lobby, about Ambassador uh, Richard Doni, about the CIA, about CNN, about Michael Rubin, about a variety of, of different people. Um, so if uh, there was no tweet from the president last Friday, you can be sure that even if no tweet but the same policy, President Erdogan, and even if there was no policy, the president would be the president of Turkey would be uh, uh, publicly blaming the United States for engaging in economic warfare, an economic coup, and imploring Turks to destroy their iPhones. Andrew Brunson is no doubt a flashpoint in the relationship, but the deterioration of U.S.-Turkey relations was already well underway. And this is where I disagree with uh, something that Max said. I don't believe that this is about. President Trump and President Erdogan. Yes, there are particular personality traits of both of them that make this a, a, a more difficult situation. But in fact, uh, there have been changes underway for quite some time. That glue that held Turkey and the United States together over the Cold War no longer exists. The Cold War, I want to remind people, ended almost 30 years ago. It cannot be 1985 forever in this relationship. I think that rather than trying to save a relationship, we should recognize that there isn't a strategic relationship and figure out how to deal with a very important, very important country on the face of it, but a country that is not as important to the United States as it once was. We need to develop alternatives, work with the Turks in places where we can, but oppose them in places where they very clearly have different interests and priorities than the United States. Much of what we have thought about Turkey over the course of the last 10, 15 or more years about its strategic utility to the United States, about it being a model, as it being a, a, a force for peace in the region, are things that Westerners have imputed to Turkey. All of those projects that we thought uh, that, that Turkey would be useful for, uh, helping with soft landings in Central Asia after the end of the Cold War, helping to forge peace between Israelis and Palestinians, being a force for stability and security in the Middle East, being a model for Arab countries seeking to transition to more just and democratic societies, Turkey failed or was unable to or had no capacity to do any of those things. So we should stop talking about those things. We should stop talking about a strategic relationship for these important things that really doesn't exist. It is also Hard to make the case that Turkey is an ally and a partner when you consider the long list of problems and issues that highlight the differences in priorities, interests, and goals. And let me just give you nine or ten of them. The Turks have opposed U.S. policy on Iran. They first negotiated a separate nuclear agreement with the help of the Brazilians. They opposed U.N. sanctions on Iran and then helped the Turks evade those sanctions. All in between all of that, they blew the cover on an Israeli intelligence operation gathering information on the Iran nuclear program. They have enabled extremists in Syria. They complicated the fight against the Islamic State in Syria and threatened U.S. forces in response. We called a working group 
to help them achieve their goals and which they promised they would no longer threaten American forces in the region. They're, of course, buying the S-400, which is a potential threat to the F-35. The F-35, 100 of which the Turks hope to have in their arsenal. They have become a patron of Hamas and have stirred up trouble in Jerusalem. No matter what you think about President Trump's move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, stirring up trouble on the Haram al-Sharif, the Temple Mount, is the height of irresponsibility. They've established uh, or are establishing uh, a military presence in the Red Sea, which is unnerving our allies in Egypt and increasing tension between Egypt and Sudan and Egypt and Ethiopia, something that no one needs given the, the, the construction of uh, the great uh, Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. Turkey has been particularly aggressive in the Aegean since 2016. The, the Greek government, flat on its back from a terrible economic and financial crisis, has had to spend time and money uh, defending its territory against uh, unnecessarily provocative Turkish actions in the Red Sea. And then, of course, we have the arrest of Americans, not just Pastor Andrew Brunson, who happens to be a pastor, so I'm not quite sure why we should have a problem calling him that. Pastor Brunson, as well as anywhere between 15 to 20 Amer Turkish Americans who are being held in Turkish jails. We don't know the exact number because, of course, the Turks have not permitted us consular access to all of these people. All of these people are being used as bargaining chips. I think Amnesty International used the term hostages in order to force the extradition of Fethullah Gulen or Mehmet Hakan Atila uh, to secure his release after being convicted in the largest sanctions-busting scheme in history. And, of course, there is the hounding of Americans in Turkey and abroad. Uh, sitting just here is uh, my good friend and, uh, and, and, and colleague, Henri Barkey, uh, who has been pinned uh, as being responsible in part for the failed coup d'etat, who can't go back to the, to the land of, of his birth. I, I think that this is uh, outrageous that um, Turkish courts and Turkish government and the Turkish press have gone after innocent American citizens. And then finally, uh, an astounding 80% of Turks believe that the United States was complicit in the coup d'etat and is thus complicit with the economic coup d'etat. That is the direct result of a narrative that the Turkish government has emphasized over and over and over again, not just since the failed coup in July 2016, but for far longer, that the United States is out to undermine a NATO ally. Now, the Turks can answer each and every one of these criticisms. We work with the YPG. Fethullah Gulen was guilty. Uh, we have our own separate interests. All of those things are fine and valid. And if the Turks want to believe that the United States was involved in the coup, that's fine. If they make a good case that the YPG is part of the PKK, that is also valid. And it's also true. Of course, the Turks were ambivalent about the fight against the Islamic State. Their mirror image of these complaints are valid. They're issues that vex the Turkish government. They're issues that vex Turks more generally. But that doesn't mean that we have to accept all of their arguments. My point is, is that there really is no chance, at this moment at least, for getting back on the same page. There is no saving a strategic relationship when the strategic relationship was overrated to begin with. 
if you look at the record of the last 10 years, which I've just gone through, not as meticulously as I'd like, I don't have enough time, but you see that it's clear that we talk about Turkey as a strategic partner and a valuable ally and extremely, crucially, critically important, when it really hasn't been. Uh, it is important for the problems and headaches it has created for U.S. policymakers rather than for being a genuine partner of the United States. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.